welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we covered the slow to get started right into France proper, the Imperials in Spain making gains, forcing France to scramble to react, Spain ceding many of its gains, retreating to more secure footholds as they lacked the real forces to hold that gains in France, which did do damage and put a bit of fear into the French courts. And the other part of the episode was discussing the Peace of Prague, where Ferdinand was trying to secure a more stable internal peace, focusing on how to implement the Edict of Restitution, along with military changes like dissolving the Catholic League, unifying military command. But it should be said, the measure wasn't fully accepted yet, which will be covered today. And with that covered, let's get started. With Saxony becoming the most important representative, they were, used, they were used to negotiate with the other German princes, as well as Johann George being commissioned to negotiate with Sweden. He was allowed to keep Saxon's army separate from the main army as a special privilege, Arnhem leaving the army due to having fought against the Emperor, retiring to the state in Brandenburg. It was a conflict of interest sort of thing. The Swedes did capture him in 1637 after putting a bounty on his head, but he managed to escape, and he was replaced in the Saxon command after his sacking slash leaving the military. The Saxons evacuated Silesia and focused focused their 25,000 men at Leipzig in July 1635. They were joined by 7,000 Imperials on the Oder, positioning this army in a position to oppose the Swedes. Brandenburg quickly signed a peace deal by early 1635, but couldn't afford to oppose the Swedes due to their part of the territory being held by Sweden. They feared reprisals, so they discharged their forces, sending three regiments to Saxony, maintaining neutrality. And on top of those two, the Lower Saxon collaborators accepted peace by May, reducing the influence of Sweden in that area. Duke George of Lundberg became the most influential figure among this group after Frederick Ulrich of Wolfenbüttel died falling down a set of stairs. He was childless, and George, taking the seat of power, or his family taking the seat of power, established his own principality by 1636, although there was an issue around Hildesheim, as it was supposed to be restored to Ferdinand of Cologne, and, you know, nobles arguing over territory, that whole thing. He was still technically attached to the Swedes at this time, but when he accepted the peace, he resigned his commission to keep that issue from happening. But at the same time, he didn't fully give in to Ferdinand, only offering to be commissioned as an imperial general, which he shared with his brother. He didn't cooperate with the emperor, so Ferdinand allegedly kept a 7,000-man garrison in Wolfenbüttel, just to keep an eye on them and to force their hand in relation to Hildesheim, or try to at least. Wolfenbüttel had also gone through a major population decrease, going from 1,200 or so to 160, showing how desolate the war had made this area. And it was on the brink of economic collapse, and what it sounded like. The war had devastated areas like this, and especially in areas where there was constant warfare and clashing. It wasn't uncommon for town and regions to take decades or even a century to cover population, as I mentioned in previous episodes. And Brandenburg and the Gulefs managed to evade reprisals due to them being strong enough to not be able to be forced to join either side, so they could effectively remain neutral. This had an effect on limiting the approaches to Sweden's forces, as the Imperials could only operate in the Elbe and Oder corridor, which gave the Swedes a better situation to defend themselves, which still wasn't great, but it's still better than having a whole front to attack from. Ferdinand of Cologne was unable to recover Hildesheim, so he was more skeptical of the peace until Maximilian helped negotiate concessions, allowing the Westphalian army to act as an army corps of their own. This old unified army thing that Ferdinand was doing was kind of not as strong, considering he kept giving out special privileges to not be forced to follow their army. I just find that really funny. It's like, we're trying to simplify command, but they keep giving that out as a privilege or concession to whatever someone was not wanting to play ball fully. It was more restrictive than the others, partially out of influence and partially out of the fact that the forces were small enough of the Westphalians to need support from Bavarian or Imperial units, so more controlled, but there was still a degree of independence the other units didn't have. 
In that same agreement, Bavaria was also given more autonomy, Maximilian negotiating on behalf of Westphalia as well. Maximilian was able to not get rid of Duke Charles fully, but he was not necessarily in his hair anymore. And the pattern of allowing loopholes continued from this, as other territories were allowed to maintain independent garrisons and regiments in smaller numbers, though they could be requested to assist the main imperial army if needed. Only one duke, Wolfgang Wilhelm of Falls Newburg, was prosecuted as he was a Catholic that refused to sign the peace, but that was done through political pressure rather than military force. The Piccolo meeting was around just in case any of the princes got ideas. Duke Wolfgang was reduced to around 870 men, as the rest defected the Imperials due to lack of pay, which left him with a small amount of men at Dusseldorf. So he was much more easily contained than any other threat. This was a very clear sign this was based on constitutional power, not any sort of religious or bigger ideal. This was the constitution of the HRE being enforced, not anything else, which goes back to enforcing the whole, this war is more secular now compared to before. I mean, at least public facing now. One issue that was created with this exclusion that mentioned last week, was the fact that those who were part of the Heilbronn League were part of the, the amnesty question, in quotes. The Archduke, which is the son of the Emperor, was prepared to give the blanket amnesty, but Ferdinand was opposed to that, excluding Heston Castle, the Elector Palatine, Wartenberg, Hohenlohe, several Rhinish counts, and both the Bohemian exiles. Many were Calvinists, and Johann George maintained Calvinists shouldn't be part of the peace, even though they were legally technically in the peace by the 1627 rule. Ferdinand also targeted those listed before. Ferdinand also targeted those listed because they would disrupt any new political balance of the empire, as those listed would have been a major collaborator with Sweden, or their lands had already been given as a reward to others so it would be disruptive. Notable among this was Frederick V, as accepting him would mean negating the deal with Bavaria, and he couldn't afford that, or Frederick V's family, who still technically had claims they could assert on the Palatine. Practical politics would make going against Bavaria a dumb idea, especially after the deal that was made with them last week, which was special military command, marrying one of the emperor's daughters, and they were particularly important for making this peace happen. And Wurttemberg was excluded for a few reasons, although none of them were religious in nature. The archives being opened had shown their extensive collaboration with Sweden, which justified the use of the duchy as a source of rewards after Sweden's defeat at Nordlingen. Bavaria wanted Heidelheim, the Habsburg in Tyrol wanted land near their Swabian holdings, the prelates wanted their monasteries back, and other officers wanted a cut of the rewards. Only seven or so districts were given to a few men, but Ferdinand didn't give in, but Ferdinand didn't give in to any other demands, as this was a more complex issue than just other cities, considering this was one of the free cities of the Empire. The Imperial Knights in the Empire were also not excluded, which was similarly resisted by Ferdinand. This is certainly a tricky balancing act, and I can imagine trying to juggle everyone's needs and wants were stressful, especially those you want to keep on your side. Politics is a messy business. Another ally of the peace, Darmstadt, made a fairly unreasonable claim they wanted all of Castle. This was impractical, so it was given parts of the Palatine as an alternative reward to satiate them. The four counties of, of the nassau walrum line were also given out to a handful of people, which included Duke Charles of Lorraine, who was still doing his War of Castles in Alsace. Well, yeah, in Alsace, if I remember correctly. Without getting too deep into the rest of the nitty-gritty, giving out this land was politically smart and understandable. The men given these lands were supporters of the Empire and the Emperor, and they had suffered from those who had been excluded, and this certainly was a good choice to keep their loyalty, but it did have a bad side effect. The targeting of others and excluding them made the general peace, which the peace of Prague was supposed to be, not really look like a general peace. The peace was supposed to be for all German princes and nobility, at least like in theory, obviously we know practicality, that's not what it was. 
But the list mentioned earlier show that there was a lot of people who were being targeted for political expedience or just political reasons. Not that they were unreasonable from their side of the war, but from an idealistic point of view, it's kind of breaking the whole idea of this as being a general piece that could apply to all in the Empire. The Archduke was put into a bad situation, as it was an impossible task to resolve this snarl, being stuck between offering partial pardons and fully restoring the lands and status, which he couldn't do either of, as his father was still the one in charge. Politics, as always, is complex. But Ferdinand was stuck between a rock and a hard place, having to please his supporters and not take their land back to give to the original owners, and to try to keep the image of the peace as a general peace. But that wasn't the only major issue that he had to deal with, as some people did not respond as well to threats, being excluded, you know, this whole thing. Hessen-Kessel was a different matter to the others, as this was a military solution over a political one. Granted, if you ignore the idea that military is just an extension of politics, but we're kind of this as a politics is talking, military is shooting and stabbing. The issue here was that the rulers of Hessen-Kessel had a strong military, and their forces were entrenched in Westphalia from the Swedish part of the war. They were worried of Calvinists being excluded, as information wasn't 100%, so people were worried about Calvinists being excluded, and Calvinists were kind of the punching bags of the Protestants compared to the Lutherans. Hessen Castle also wanted to come out of this war in a better position than they were currently in, so being able to have some military force would give them better terms. Landgrave Wilhelm V had felt his family was treated with unnecessary severity, and assured Oxenstierna he was loyal to Sweden, his faith only shaken when the Swedes retreated over the Rhine, along with Sweden's main army suffering a mutiny which we will cover next week, or not next week, but next time, so don't you worry about that. He left garrisons in Castle and Ziegenhain and retreated with 4,000 men to join the Westphalian outposts. The Imperialists gathered 12,000 troops, which convinced Hessen Castle to agree to a truce by October 1635, or Shuk Ferdinand suspending any operations in the area. Wilhelm had provisionally accepted the peace, but the Emperor was unable to seal the deal, so Imperial troops went to Westphalia as it was becoming obvious military force was going to be needed here. The Emperor did try to reopen talks through the Bishop of Würzburg, but all that did was get Wilhelm to pretend to negotiate to scare France for better terms, the Landgrave not trusting the worthy Emperor, and it's a common tactic to pretend you're negotiating with the enemy to get an ally to give you more of what you want. Oxenstierna ordered Alexander Leslie, a reliable Scottish mercenary, to reorganize the leaderless main army, headless since Confoutin's death in January 1636. Also, I realize it's been a while since we talked about Swedes as a, one of the major political players. Leslie raised the morale of 3,000 Germans holding out at Osnabrück, and several regiments of George Lundberg defected, giving Leslie command of the western part of Lundberg. This emboldened Wilhelm, who denounced the treaty in May 1636, which was partially explained by his wife, Amelie Elizabeth. She was an influential figure with her own power, one of the few women of the HRE that had enough power on their own to rule in their own name. She wanted to save her hometown, Hanau, which she was the countess of, and she presented herself as a peacemaker, seeing this as an opportunity to try to, one, secure her hometown, and two, to try to expand her husband's territory and give him greater influence as this would impact her standing and her family's standing. Honestly, she was at least recorded as being more determined than him to expand. I would joke about, uh, what's her name? Lady Macbeth, but I don't think she was that bad. Hessen troops marched to Hanau, joining Leslie to help break the siege of the town, and, like usual, a region with enough military power is becoming an annoying test of threat to the Empire, who's sort of fighting on two fronts, although France isn't fully into the fighting yet. But with the Hessian army mostly gone, Westphalians took back most of their territory temporarily, leaving the Hessians with Lipstadt, Dornsten, and Coesfields. Oxenstierna then had to recall Leslie to the east to resolve another issue, forcing the Hessians to withdraw from Hanau, exposing the Hessen-Kessel lands to be attacked. 
Ferdinand was also frustrated at this point as to the peace deal being harder than he thought. So he ordered troops to be gathered and put Wilhelm under the imperial ban, heating up the war with Sweden again. But I'll leave this here, as next week we're going to cover more about Sweden, and Sweden being a little bit more involved in the war again. Well, not that they weren't involved, but more focusing on them again. But I want to cover my thoughts on the peace as a whole, as this is sort of... Not the end of the peace, but at least my focus on it. The peace was definitely not a universal peace that Ferdinand wanted, as the exceptions in the conflict of Hessen Castle definitely showed, but it tried to create a nationalistic idea of German, even though it's a bit early to compare to modern nationalism of Prussia and the creation of Germany as a nation. Nationalism is a topic for a few centuries down the line, so this isn't accurate to this time period, it's anachronism to call it that, but the concept of creating a one body based on rough Germanism is a first proto-step, and this would have a long-term effect on the Empire, if not necessarily a good short-term effect, as will be discussed later. Not this episode, but next one. This conflict with Hessen Castle and the people that were excluded also created issues of making the peace look less appealing, as this created misgivings about the Emperor for those who were still not trusting him fully. Because the kind of he was willing to use military force to enforce that, even though technically Hessen Castle was an ally of Sweden, it's complicated. It didn't help that those excluded were those it would hurt the Emperor to support, which made sense in a practical sense, but again, that idealized image was not shattered, but definitely cracked when there were people that said, no, we're not signing a peace. But the peace was effective in unifying the HRE to support the monarchy among those willing to accept, and, uh, and it created a more internal stability, gave the Hasbrugs a bit more power to negotiate, even if sometimes the Hasbrugs would delegate that to Johann George or others, and it did give mechanisms for future people to be reintegrated and deal with the whole religious conflict, although, like I say a lot, that will have to come down to time to tell how successful that will be. But for now, this is going to be the end, as next week we cover the mutiny that was mentioned in the episode, and the matters around that, and other parts of the war that were sort of not covered, slash were kind of happening at the same time as France was doing their thing. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon. Thanks to those who support me. Interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>